From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Don't just be non-racist, you have to be anti-racist. So that means looking at your home, your place of worship, your banks, your schools, um, where you're employed, and asking who is here, who has opportunities, who is not here, and why not. And that means uncomfortable conversations with your employer, with your pastor, right, with your child's teacher. Um, But I guarantee that those conversations are less uncomfortable than the final minutes of George Floyd's life. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts provide legal and historical context for today's headlines. When issuing calls for justice, civil rights leaders often invoke the quote, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? While protests and rioting sparked by the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police render that call for action more urgent than ever. On today's show, Professor Osamudia James, a scholar on race and education, joins us to discuss the continuing racial inequality that has prompted protests across the nation and the possible pass forward. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Osamudia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Always great to talk to you. As we said in the intro, if not now, then when? So what is going on now? Well, right now, if especially if protests continue this evening, we're on at least the 10th night of protests in the wake of George Floyd's killing at the hands of Minneapolis police. Um, and on one hand, this is remarkable because of how sustained the protests have been, um, how coordinated they've been. There's really a story in here of local organizing around issues of racial justice led by young people who have been building capacity and experience over the last 10 years. Um, in Miami, that looks like organizations like the Dream Defenders. And it's also remarkable in terms of how comprehensive the protests have been. A tracking by USA Today found that there have been protests across the country in cities big and small across all 50 states. Unfortunately, the other reason it's remarkable is because of police response to the protests in cities like New York, Los Angeles, D.C., even Miami. We're seeing police departments responding with unjustified and disproportionate force, and they're escalating instead of de-escalating violence um, and displaying a level of rage that I think has given a lot of Americans, all Americans, some insight into the sort of policing about which black and poor communities have been complaining for a long time. Um, there's an account on Twitter that keeps track of reports of abuse caught on video uh, it posts the video, it posts the city, a description of what happened. And the last time I checked, it was up to 224 separate incidents of unjustified instances of police force. And in 10 days. In 10 days, right? And so I think that um, probably almost more than anything is what has been driving people back out into the streets to protest for over a week. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call what's happening now a perfect storm because there's nothing perfect about it. Maybe it's a cataclysmic conversion. So how does a pandemic and an economic collapse that disproportionately affects black and brown people factor into all of what's going on? 
Yeah, so it's definitely, uh, you know, everyone who's paying attention should know by now that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted minority communities and Black communities in particular. Uh, there's a COVID racial tracker, a joint project of two policy and research centers, and they work together to analyze some of the data reported by at least 48 states based on what we know so far. Mm-hmm. Nationally, African-American deaths from COVID-19 are two times greater than would be expected, in some places three times or four times greater. Um, in 42 states, plus Washington, D.C., uh, Hispanics and Latinos make up a greater share of confirmed cases than are expected based on their share of the population. In 37 states, including the District of Columbia, white deaths from COVID-19 are lower than their share of the population. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen some disproportionality among Native Americans, um, um, Asian American populations. And, and this is only with I think we have data on something like 48% of the cases, right? And 90% of the deaths that are being reported still have no race attached to them. So it's probably worse than what's being reported. Right. And and the reason why we've seen such a disproportionate impact on minority communities and Black communities in particular is because of the sort of structural reasons uh, that we tend not to pay any attention to, mm-hmm. um, especially because they are sort of framed to us as race neutral, but in fact are quite raced, right? So black and brown people are disproportionately essential and frontline workers, grocery store clerks, uh, nurses, social services, employees, public transit workers. Um, our public health infrastructure has been gutted um, and gutted the most in areas where black people live. Um, not only do uh, people of color have restricted access to health care, when they do get health care, they receive inferior care. But then even in cities like New Orleans, things like drive through testing is not working because the virus hotspots were located in predominantly low income communities where residents didn't have cars. Right. right? And so you're responding to the virus with drive through testing, which seems great, but people can't get there. Um, you add on top of that disproportionate levels of wealth between white and black communities or white communities and communities of color. And then we know that black people are being furloughed and laid off at higher rates than whites during the pandemic, especially because they're more likely to work in industries like hospitality or dining areas that have been shut down by the crisis. So I say all of this to say that there are structural conditions that give rise to heightened vulnerability to illness and unemployment as a result of the virus, but those are also the same conditions that support and reinforce police brutalities. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, police brutality in Black communities. Um, the sort of policing that we've been horrified to see happening on the screens over the last week or so Um are the same sorts of it's the same sort of policing that happens in black communities um, and it happens in communities that have had economic disinvestment right employment disinvestment housing disinvestment um, and so police enter those spaces differently than they do other spaces right they mm-hmm. like all of us they've gotten the message that these spaces are not worth it these people are not worth it these people are bad or they're inferior we haven't invested in these communities and police enter those communities thinking they're dangerous and not worth it. And so to the extent that we have problems with policing, they're going to be magnified in those communities. Mm-hmm. And it's all linked to the same thing. It's all about how we have disinvested in communities of color. We've, we've been here before with, with protests after Eric Garner, after all these things uh, against police brutality, like even going way back. I mean, the last time I remember widespread protests like this was actually after Martin Luther King's assassination. But I I think in the nearer past, we can look at the 1992 uh, protests and accompanying riots uh, after the jury acquitted the police officers who beat Rodney King. 
And, you know, anyone who lives in South Florida can certainly remember the 1980s when we had two riots. The first one um, being when uh, four white police officers beat a a black motorcyclist, uh, Arthur McDuffie, with their flashlights. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other is is when uh, a Hispanic officer shot at two men on a motorcycle that he, they didn't even know if he, they had done anything, but they didn't stop, ended up killing both of them and, and, and causing all these riots. So have we made any progress? Uh, so I don't want to say that we've made no progress, right? And I think for, you know, a lot of people in communities of color and black communities, there are opportunities that might not have existed, right, 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. And I think um, there are ways in which awareness around these issues has been heightened. But at the same time, the structural conditions that make it possible for police to act with impunity in these cases, right, those have become deeply entrenched. Um, and the relationship between protesters and communities when it, when it, when it comes to protesting, that relationship has, I move backwards, right? I think there was a period in the 80s and the 90s where police officers and police departments thought of of themselves as working in conjunction with protesters, right? You come, we're going to plan it, we're going to create a space, we're going to protect you. After the, uh, the World Trade Organizations, I think in the 1990s, th- that series of protests went off track, right? Protesters and police officers work together, but the, the protests did turn violent. And I think coming out of that, police departments start thinking, no, you have to control these sorts of things. They're going to be violent. You can't trust protesters. And we've moved in a direction in which police officers are really framed as oppositional to protesting. Um, and so, you know, so, so, so that relationship has frayed some, right? That role of I'm here to ensure your right to protest has frayed at least, at least for uh, black and brown communities. Um, well, the I question think- I, I wanted to just stop for one second and ask you, um, and, and how is the militarization of police kind of fed into that, that relationship, the no longer symbiotic relationship between protesters and, and police? It, it just feels like at some point that kind of switch to, you know, now they're wearing riot helmets and, you know, driving around in, in tanks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Some of this is about right how we have distributed military equipment to police departments to make them feel like they are in a war zone, um, and that has happened alongside um, contract and union negotiations that have protected them on based on the idea that no one can know what it is we put up with, right? No one can understand how it is we go into the communities, the problems that we solve. It's a politically um, dangerous situation for politicians to come in and say, I'm, I want police reform, right? No one wants to look like you're trashing the heroes of our communities. And police departments are very good at fundraising, right? And so they're able to oppose politicians that want to put some reins on all of this. And, and right. And, and you, you, you overlay that with an increased investment in military equipment for police departments and they have to use it, right? And they get it. And it changes both the way they feel going into communities and then it changes what they look like when they show up to protest and when you right. show up in riot gear right before a riot starts you are already escalating right police are escalating from the start right and maybe not maybe not intentionally um but when you are protesting in the street and a police officer shows up with tanks right military equipment your heart rate goes up and you think okay we are 
we are a conflict. You're not here to protect me. You are here to fight me. And 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 we have to ask police departments to take responsibility for that. Right. I mean, yes, they no longer feel like, um, yes, you're right. You're setting the tone by coming in uh, in your military. You're setting us apart. Like it becomes much more an us and them and not we like mm-hmm. we're all you know americans we're all neighbors we all live together um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then there also seems to at least in some cases feel like a little boys in their toys and some glee that they're you know getting 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 to go out and play soldier sort of you know, i don't know it's been a very odd 10 days of, of watching this yeah. I mean, so I, th- I think what you're referring to is the shock that we feel when we see police officers ripping off a mask so that they can pepper spray you more. Right. Or pushing someone who hasn't um, that hasn't um, provoked that response. Right. And so trying to understand what's going on with a culture of policing that would encourage these sorts of engagements. And and I, I think it is one, a deification of what police do. Right. And we want to respect what they do. They keep us safe. They enter dangerous situations, right? We want to respect that. Um, but thinking that we always have to defer to what police are doing, right, is dangerous in, in if we're really going to live in a democracy. And I also think you add on that the impunity, the union uh, contracts that protect them from accountability, the the judicial changes to 1983 legislation that make it impossible to bring suit. And you put all of that together, right? One, we are going to defer to you no matter what, and no one's going to challenge you. Two, we're going to contract away anything that might hold you accountable. Three, we're going to change legislation that was meant to rein you in. And then four, you, like everyone else, have been taught that communities of color are not worth it or they're dangerous or they're expendable. You put all that together. And yes, what you're going to see is a level of rage um, and violence that's unacceptable for people who are supposed to serve us and keep us safe. So short answer, no progress. You know, so there are places in the United States that are seeing some progress. Austin, Texas is the example everyone cites. A couple of years ago, they were able to um, the, you know, they, they made the, the, they made the city call their bluff, right? They told the city, we are going to fight this. Um, and the police department walked away from the negotiation table and then they didn't have the, the contract was not renewed. And so they didn't have their benefits. Um, and they came back to the table and they finally got some concessions that create accountability. So we can make progress, but yeah, the last, the last couple of decades have not been good in terms of police accountability. We talked a little bit about like the militarization of the police and, you know, the, the fact that they're like diverting a lot of funds to that and, and taking away, we haven't really talked about it, but, uh, community policing and, and, um, uh, community boards that, uh, do some police oversight. Could you talk a little about that, that sort of financial and, and union impact that we don't really think about? Absolutely. Right. So in terms of, what you invest in is going to grow, right? So you see a, a huge budget investment in in police departments. So in LA, out of a budget of 11 billion, police make up 3 billion, right? More than parks and recreation, more than transportation, more than housing and community investment, more than emergency management. Um, in Miami, for every dollar spent in the 1920 budget, 19, you know, 2019, 2020 budget, um, 
Public safety, which includes corrections and policing, accounts for 31 cents of every dollar in the budget. That's more than, yeah, that's more than the two cents that's spent on uh, neighborhood infrastructure, more than the 10 cents that's on health and society, more than the 14 cents that is spent on economic development, right? And so all the things that if you spent more on, the need for police would decrease, right? Because people would be more secure. Um, and so... Um, if you divert all that funding to investment, the the police will grow, right? And they will find ways to justify that investment um, and other things are going to shrink in relation to that. Um, in terms of unions, you know, and I, I'm a union girl. I believe it's important for employees to come together to negotiate for better working conditions. Um, but we've seen in cities that police departments are able to contract for things like automatically downgrading a suspension to a written reprimand, a confidential written reprimand after three years automatically, right? Pushing, Mm -hmm. opposing independent oversight boards, um, limiting the times for investigation, opposing civilian complaints, um, uh, creating very short statutes of limitations on complaints. And when you do those sorts of things, you make it impossible to get accountability and impossible um, and you grow a culture of impunity inside the department. Um, and and again, there's nothing wrong with unions. But when it's an institution like a police, like the police that have a monopoly on state backed violence. Right. On on on. Mm-hmm. Then it's inappropriate for union negotiations to bargain away accountability for use of that monopoly. Right. And in fact, bargaining away that that accountability creates perverse incentives and creates perverse cultures within police departments. Well, yesterday, Ferguson got their first woman and their first black mayor, and they're now on their second black police chief. Yes, I saw that. Uh, You know, Ferguson became one of these cities that highlighted not just how police departments were um, being abusive in communities, but how cities were relying on a criminal justice system to plug up holes in their budget, right? Excessive citations and fines for showing up to court. And so that's a way in which race and economics become layered over each other. The city is strapped for cash, and so they turn to excessive policing that's going to give them additional revenue. Um, And sometimes you have to with new leadership, you have to use that as an opportunity to sort of rebuild. Right? So I think the Camden, New Jersey Police Department completely just started from scratch, got rid of everyone and started from the beginning. Um, but but you do need politicians who are eager to make that sort of switch. Well, I mean, when you talk about the, the fining and using that as a revenue, and it, it, it even went many steps beyond that, whereas you, you didn't pay your fines, you yes. went to jail, and then you were in the you know, into that budget where you're getting $50 a day for each inmate and, uh, you know, kind of criminalizing debt. Yes, absolutely. And it was a a trap that people with lower incomes could not get out of. All right. And we think about our criminal justice system as holding people accountable for crimes. And we could debate what sort of crimes people should be picked up for, right? If you're in small scale marijuana distribution, right, should you really be charged with the felony? Right. There's discretion around those questions. But then, OK, fine, we've decided to charge people and prosecute them. But people now are sitting here because they don't have the money to pay for the fines that went with the initial infraction. Um, like a governmental payday lender. Essentially. Right. Right. Sort of taking advantage. So it's 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 undemocratic. Yes. <laughs> is what I'd say. 
It feels like we're caught in a series of stops and starts. Reconstruction, Jim Crow, President Obama, then Black Lives Matter. We are making progress, but especially in the last three years, we feel very divided by color, by economics, by by politics. So is there, like, how can we have really true and lasting change? And, and will, will, you, will you and I see that in our lifetimes? I don't know if we will see an end to this in our lifetimes. I will say that we have to make change to structures, 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 structures. I made reference to an ideology that doesn't value communities of color. And, you know, that's about people's what's going on in their minds and their hearts, in, implicit bias and conscious bias. Those things are very hard to change. Um, and I'm actually less interested in changing that than I am in creating systems that account for the human tendency to do this to people. Right. And so maybe you don't like it that I move in next door to you, but it's important that I have fair housing laws that protect my right to move in next door to you. Um, so maybe it might take a, a long time to get not just police officers, but all of us to think about communities of color as worthy and full citizens like everyone else. Um, but in the meantime, we do have to fight for rules and legislation that make it illegal to use a chokehold against any individual in any context, right? We need to make it easier to get prosecution and conviction against police officers who are abusing communities. Um, and so, you know, moving in that direction, we can save lives, right? Even if you're not necessarily changing hearts. Mm -hmm. um, and we might not see it in my lifetime or your lifetime, but our obligation, if we want to keep this democracy, is to keep pushing for it, nevertheless. And teach your children well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the te yes. I mean, and I think that's something that people can do individually after they have thought about what who you know who they're putting into power and what legislation they're supporting yes at home you have to do that work right um so after the hand wringing and the and the slacktivism is over how would you say all citizens can actively participate in change in the voting booth of course yes so so this goes this this piggybacks with the last question about getting yourself educated and getting your children educated. And I don't just mean, oh, we're a colorblind society, which is a myth, or everyone's the same. Because children, they hear the messages you tell them and they go into the world and they see that, that that skin color is in fact changing some things. And so I would, in terms of educating, get educated on the history of racial subordination in your city, right? If you live in Coral Gables, do you know why there are no, very few black people in the Gables? Do you know that black laborers who lived in the Grove built the gables, but were not permitted to purchase homes there, right? You have to understand so that you can understand the patterns you see today are actually intentional. Um, support the local organizations that are doing the work, either with your time or your resources. Right? Campaign Zero tracks these problematic um, union contracts for police departments. Eight Can't Wait is um, a website that offers eight policy interventions for policing that can decrease police killings by up to 70%. Right. So get on there and see if your city has adopted these interventions and, and how you could do some work to make sure that they do. Um, think about the other policies that have wrought destruction in the communities that are being terrorized by police, housing, health care, education. Right. And using that information, go out and vote, hold people accountable, um, be willing to break ranks with your party if they are not thinking about these issues in progressive ways. Um 
And then finally, don't just be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist. So that means looking at your home, your place of worship, your banks, your schools, um, where you're employed and asking who is here, who has opportunities, who is not here and why not. And that means uncomfortable conversations with your employer, with your pastor, right, with your child's teacher. Um, but I guarantee that those conversations are less uncomfortable than the final minutes of George Floyd's life. Thank you so much, Azamunia, for your, for your thoughts, for joining us. Um, I always enjoy um, seeing you in the elevator and, um, <laughs> you know, in this case, seeing you on my screen. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you um, and to really engage these issues more. Thank you so much. All right. Be well, my friend. You too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show was engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Miami School of Law's Concentration in Social Justice and Public Interest for students with an interest in societal inequalities and power differentials. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu forward slash concentrations. Thank you.